Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 384 featuring Bill Plimpton. Uh, I I can't tell you how excited I am to have Bill Plimpton on uh, the podcast. Uh, I met him, I think it was 2006 or 2007. Uh, we were both speakers at an event, but he is, he is one of the best animators in the world. Uh, I am just absolutely in love with his work that I saw the first time on liquid television back in the 90s. Uh, uh, and it was it just blew my mind uh, what he does. And he literally uh, hand draws every frame uh, and it's just an absolutely incredible stuff. And his, his style is incredible. His work is incredible. Uh, led to two Oscar nominations. Uh, and it's just an absolutely incredible guy um, and a super nice guy. And I was excited to have him on the podcast because he, at the talk that I saw him give uh, uh, back in Guadalajara, uh, he he gave uh, uh, some incredible advice, uh, and I thought it was super cool. So, Kristen, what did you think of what do you think of Bill? Yeah, well, this his story is amazing. Um, it's it's an incredible podcast. But he knew he wanted to be an animator at a young age of like eight or nine, and he constantly pursued that dream um and he was able to express his funny side through art and drawing he realized so um and his like you said his style of animation um relied on his skill as an illustrator um because he did draw every frame um and that's what he developed early in his career um and he also like gives great advice on being an independent animator and just not getting stuck in the studio system so that was very interesting um and he shares some like great stories of the kind of rough and tumble days of video pirating back in the day um that was a cool one and then uh he also just broke the boundaries of cartoons you know not just being for kids but for adults as well so right. um yeah very interesting yeah, I really like uh, like his style and and his sense of humor is is definitely somewhat twisted, but that's the best part of it. Uh, and uh, and he's just a really interesting person, uh, and I was really honored to, to be able to have him on. I literally just cold called him and see if you could do it, and he said yeah. So I was really honored to do that. Um, all right, we have a couple of quick announcements we want to put out there. Uh, first thing is V-Ray Six for Max is out, and it's got a lot of great new stuff in it. Uh, including uh, the new procedural clouds, uh, geometry patterns, scatter tools, uh, V-Ray decal and displacement, uh, new object hierarchy, and a whole bunch more. V-Ray 6 uh, is super cool and uh, definitely worth checking out. So make sure to go to chaos.com and check out all the new features uh, and uh, give it uh, a try if you'd like to. Um, we have two events happening, Kristen. What's going on? Yeah, so both events are happening July 28th, and you can find these at chaos.com slash events. The first one is a free webinar, um, and it's about creating detailed exteriors uh, with V-Ray 6. So as they say, explore the unexplored with the new features in V-Ray 6. And then the other one on July 28th is uh, the Chaos Campus Live Show, which will be episode five, and it will be with host Nikos and Georgie Zekov, and um, they will deep dive into Chaos Phoenix and, and the life in CG. So don't forget to check those out. Chaos.com slash events. Uh, again, uh, those are going to be really great. Uh, go check those out. Uh, if people want to know more about the podcast, Kristen, where can they go? You can go to facebook.com slash CG Garage Podcast or chaos.com slash CG Garage. And if you'd like to watch us, go to youtube.com slash chaos group TV. Perfect. And if you have any questions, don't forget to, uh, to uh, email us. Labs at chaos.com is our email. 
If you have any suggestions or anything else, that would be great. Of course, leave us a review on Apple Podcast and a rating would be very much appreciated. But for now, please enjoy episode number 384 with the amazing Bill Plimpton. Welcome to another CG Garage, where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. I think I think I mentioned to you that uh, last I met you about 15 years ago. Probably you were both uh, speakers at an event in Guadalajara. All right, yes, which was, which was uh, a lot of fun, uh, and uh, I was really kind of uh, super super interested in your talk. I've always been a huge fan of yours ever since I was uh, young, watching Liquid Television. That's uh, right. So, MTV, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I have to be closer. Or can you hear me? Okay. Uh, you can be a little closer. That would be helpful. Yeah. Okay, I will do that. Okay. Um, so, so my my uh, my my big my my big thing about that uh, that uh, that event, which I still is vivid in my mind, is was your talk was uh, not what I expected. It was a really amazing talk. And I still think about, uh, you giving people some incredible practical advice about being an animator and how that works. Uh, so I'd love to be able to, to share that same experience with some of my listeners and, and, uh, give them a little bit of a background, but let's start with your actual background. What, what got you into animation? What, what, what was their fascination with animation? Well, like most everybody today, um, you know, including John Lasseter and, and Nick Park and everybody, it's Disney, you know, I was watching Disney films at a very young age, um, and thought that was magical, uh, especially the funny ones, Goofy. I love the Goofy adventure ones. I thought they were very funny. And uh, um, my dad was a, a very funny guy. He, he worked at a bank, but he was also very funny at parties. And I, I was very jealous. I said, yeah, I wish I could make people laugh like that. But I couldn't with my talking, but I could with my drawings. So I was inspired by the Goofy Shorts to make uh, cartoons that are funny, uh, you know, drawings, little drawings, like right. New Yorker cartoon kind of thing. And then, of course, I got into Warner Brothers and, and uh, Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner and, um, uh, you know, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck. I love Daffy Duck. He was my favorite. I think Goofy and Daffy Duck were my two favorites. And uh, that's where I decided at a very early age, I think it's probably eight or nine, something like that, that I wanted to be a, an animator for Disney. That was my job. Uh, that was my career that I wanted to, to do. And so I was drawing all the time. I loved to draw. I was the class artist, you know, that typical thing. And um, um, I even had a few cartoons printed in the school newspaper. So I felt like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way. <laughs> I remember going down to Disneyland, um, I think I was 12 or 13, I believe. And I stayed with my aunt who lived in Long Beach, and she took me to Disneyland, and they had a bookshop there. And there was this book um, called uh, 
Disney. No, I'm sorry, animation. And um, it was written by, oh, I forget the guy's name now, but um, uh, it was a really great book about how Disney makes their films and all their new productions. And it was an expensive book. It was like, uh, I think, $12, which back then was a lot. And uh, my aunt said, oh, uh, because my folks gave me some money to go on the rides. And I said, I said, I wanted to buy the book. And my aunt said, aren't you going to go on the rides? You know, all the, the, tea, the crazy Mad Hatter teacup and all that stuff. I said, no, I want this book. So she was surprised how, how uh, diligent, you know, how stubborn I was in wanting to be an animator, that I would give up all these cool mm. Disney rides. So I think that was a hint that I was really firm in my, my career choice, that this, is, this was for me. In fact, my folks were very, very supportive of my drawings. See, they would give me drawing boards and stuff like that. But they thought that that was just a hobby. They didn't think it was something that I could really make money at. And they never, they never accepted it. I mean, my dad's a banker, so he wants... And they grew up in the Depression, and they knew that getting a good, solid job was the key to, to happiness. And... Um, but I, I kept drawing, and you know, I, even when I won the Oscar, they they thought that was just a fluke. They didn't think that was really a, a career, a good career move. <laughs> and I remember years later, it was, it was like uh, uh, two thousand and yeah, about two thousand, something like that. Uh, we were at a, um, a beach resort, and we we're watching TV, and uh, up comes my Geico insurance ad with the bulldog. And they went, what? You did a job. You did a cartoon for Geico? And then they finally realized that, hey, you know what? Maybe he should stick to this cartoon thing and continue working because I'm on TV with Geico. So that was a big, a big, um, a big turning point for my support for my parents. But anyway, when I, I went to Portland State College and I was dying to learn how to do animation, I even bought that Preston Blair animation book, which I think is one of the best books on animation ever, even today. And he was the guy who did uh, Red Hot Riding Hood, and he did a lot of Fantasia cartoons, some of the best animation Fantasia. He was a brilliant, brilliant artist. And I learned a lot about that, especially the movement and timing and things like that, but not the technical side, you know, how to run a camera, where to get the film, where to process the film. You know, I get an answer print or a check print or a negative. What you know, it's it's so complicated. Um, uh, but the problem was um, around that time, which is nineteen ninety nine, uh, sixty nine. Sorry, um, animation was dying. Uh, Walt Disney died in sixty uh, six, I believe, and Warner Brothers had stopped doing their cartoons, so there was no real, no real career going on and I think Disney was actually a bankrupt they were going to sell off the whole company and, and quit to quit the business so I was very very disappointed so I decided to move to New York to become an illustrator and then I went a year uh, at School of Visual Arts to learn animation I thought oh wow I'm going to take an animation class at, at SVA and then I'll learn how to make my films you know without uh, working for Disney 
And so um, I got this animation class. They said it's a good class, but the teacher was really, uh, really lame. Uh, for example, he'd wander in in the middle of the class and say, okay, today we're going to make a film about green. And he said goodbye and walked out. And I said, what the hell is that? You know, why am I here? And I wanted to learn how to make a film. And the guy was never there. It was a big waste of time. I did a bunch of experiments that were really, really uh, big failures uh, because I didn't know the, how to run a camera, how to load, load the film in the camera, you know, how to do focus and all this, all this stuff. So uh, I, I gave up and decided to be an illustrator. Um, and a cartoonist, because I knew I could make people laugh with my cartoons. Um, I was a good illustrator. I knew how to draw pretty well. I was, I'd done a lot of work in Oregon, a lot of commercial work in Oregon, caricatures and things like that. And so I took my portfolio around, and I got work. And, you know, there were some big magazines, House Beautiful and National Lampoon, Rolling Stone, New York Times, um, Penthouse Playboy, all the men's magazines. I did a lot of work for them. And, um, uh, but I still had that urge to make a, an animated film. I did one experiment. It was called um, Lucas the Era Corn. It was a story that written by a friend of mine. Um, and I, I asked him if I could make a film out of it. And it was just an experiment. I had an eight millimeter Bolex, you know, those little tiny Bolex thing. And I put it on a tripod and I moved paper around on the floor to illustrate the story of Lucas Era Corn. It's kind of a primitive look, almost like, uh, you know, South Park. Uh, it's that, yeah. it's that kind of real, real primitive kind of animation. And uh, I shot it and I never figured out how to edit it together or to, um, put the sound on there. So it, it just kind of laid the laid to waste there just as a piece of film. So I, I gave up again. I said, you know, it's just impossible. The technology is just beyond me. And so I um, got, went back to illustration. And then in 1985, I was contacted. Uh, am I going on too long here? No, no, no. Keep going. That's fine. Okay. Uh, by a woman I had done some work with called Valeria Vazileski. And she had, had a story, a script, by uh, Jules Pfeiffer, who I knew. He was a buddy of mine. And um, uh, they wanted to make a short film out of it uh, called Boomtown. And I said, oh, wow, can I do the storyboards? And she said, well, no, we want you to direct it and animate it. And I said, yay, that's exactly what I want. I want someone, I want to actually make a film. And she said, there's no money. You know, we don't have any money to pay you. I said, I don't care. I still want, I still want to do it. Because there was a woman called um, Connie D'Antonio who uh, was on the project and she had made films before. She knew the whole process. So she was my, um, my teacher in animation, how to make an animated film. And she walked me through the whole step, the sound recording, the sound editing, the sound effects, uh, all that stuff, which is really, really difficult and expensive too. Um, and so I, I did the film, it's called Boomtown. It's an anti-war film, anti-nuclear film. 
and surprisingly, it still gets shown around today. We just had an invitation; someone wanted to show it for the the war in Ukraine. Um, right. And so we did the film, and uh, we we did some. I had to, you know, raise some money. We had uh, work in progress screenings all over, and you know, we sold original art. So we had enough money to make the film, um, and it came out. It was actually kind of a success. Uh, it, it played with a, uh, a London, England film called Bauman's Lunch. This was in 86, I believe. And it played all over America. It, it was a short before the, the feature. And it got really good reviews. And I won a bunch of awards and went to Annecy because of that film. And so once I did that, I said, now I'm going to make, finally make my film that I want to make. And so I took these sketches of, of a guy's face, um, really distorted facial features. And I thought, okay, maybe I can do something with this. So I had him sing a song and I saw, I, I experimented with how weird I could make the face, um, you know, change. And um, I think I did the film in about a month. I, I did 20, uh, 30, 36 gags, facial gags. And the ones, when I animated, I didn't like, I tossed them out. I ended up with, I think, 25, 26 gags, something like that. And I put it together. It's a real stupid film. Uh, I, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's... I've seen it. <laughs> yeah. There's no plot. <laughs> there's only one cut. There's only yep. one character. He sings a bad song. He sings it badly. And his face gets weird. That's the premise of the film. So it's a real nothing film, quite quite frankly. And I remember the first time I showed it was in a CIFA screening here in New York. And these were all the big, the top uh, animators from New York were at the screening. And uh, it was a bunch of other films at the competition. And I was in the back because I didn't know any of these people. I, I found out later who they were. And... Um, um, because I, I wanted to run out when people started hissing and booing. I wanted a quick escape. <laughs> and after three or four seconds, people started to laugh. And I can't tell you what a high that gave me because all these years of doing illustrations and gag cartoons for you know National Lampoon and, and Soho News and places like that, uh, I never heard people laugh at my, my, my cartoons before. And to hear a whole room laughing was just the biggest high in the world. And I, I felt like I was levitating. I was just went into another a trance, another state of consciousness. And afterwards, uh, they came over to me and said, are, are you Bill Plumpton? Did you make that film? I said, yeah, that's me. And they said, well, let's go out and have a drink and talk animation. I just felt, ah, oh, this is what I wanted all my life. I was almost 40. I think I was 30. 39, and so I, uh, I wasted a lot of time doing print. But um, to, to hang out with all these animators and, and they answered all my questions of how I did this and how do you do that. And um, the next day I called all my print clients, magazines and newspapers. I said, I'm quitting print. I'm going into animation. I want to be an animator. And they all said, are you nuts? Animation's dead. It's a dying art form. Nobody, nobody does animation anymore. It's, it's all Hanna-Barbera, which is, you know, crap. I said, no, I think I can do it. 
And uh, the film played in Annecy, which is this big animation festival in France, probably the largest animation festival in the world. And after the screening of the film, they heard everybody laughing at the film. And people come up to me and say, well, you know, I'm from BBC. Um, here's $5,000. We'd like to buy the rights to your film. And Channel Plus came up and offered me a lot of money. And MTV offered me a lot of money. All these people wanted to show the film. And, you know, when I made the film, I never thought of that as an option, that I could sell the film and make money to make other films. I just was happy to be making animation, hoping I could show it someplace. And so um, right off the get-go, I was making money on these, this little three-minute film that uh, made no sense, but somehow uh, people liked it. So that's how I got my start. That's amazing. Uh, and I think what's incredible is that your style of animation was uh, relying completely on your skill as an illustrator because you yeah. draw every frame. <laughs> well, that's one of the good things about my um, early career as an, as an illustrator was I, I did develop a style that was really fast which is important in animation and very um, sort of impressionistic. It was a unique style for cartoons. And number two, I did develop a sense of humor of telling a joke because I did have a comic strip in the Soho Weekly News that was reprinted in about 20 other newspapers. And I did um, a lot of gag cartoons for National Lampoon and, and people like that. So I, I knew how to develop humor. I had a lot a stockpile of gags. I mean, a big stockpile of gags of ideas that I wanted to develop, even film ideas, animation ideas that I wanted to develop. So I was ready. Uh, when when you face hit, uh, I was ready to, to do a lot of animation. Um, and I must tell you, I'll be honest with you, what happened to me is not usual. Uh, usually the first film is, is pretty bad. And some of these experiments I did in college and, and that Lucas Sierra Corn was really bad. But the, the first real film that I did that was really, you know, 35 millimeter was a big success. And um, I wasn't ready for it. I, I was really shocked. It got nominated for an Oscar. It won prizes all over the world. And like I say, it sold to a lot of markets. But um, I really wasn't prepared for, like, the Oscars. I, sh I should have gone there with um, meetings, you know, do a bunch of meetings with Disney or, or Warner Brothers or someone like that and try to sell some projects. Because once you get nominated for an Oscar, they think you're a genius, <laughs> even though I wasn't a genius. Uh, the, the, somehow the Oscar thing that says that I, I'm the next big, next big Walt Disney, you know. And I wasn't prepared for that. I just sort of went to the show and, well, that was fine. Let's go home. And that was a big mistake. But you've always, but I think one of the things that impressed me about your, you know, your talk that I mentioned earlier is, is your advice about the being an independent animator and right and yeah. having control over your own destiny and control over your the own thing yeah. and not sort of working the studio system. So why 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 like how has that been one of the decision that you made and and what is the the advantages of of, of doing that? Well. Um, 
I was making such good money, and then I started doing these commercials like NutraSweet and, and Trivial Pursuit and, and um, again, the Geico Spot. And they were paying really well. Back then, in the 90s, uh, commercials paid, you know, 60, 70, 100. One job, I got $200,000. Back then, that was a lot of money. It's not around now. It's, it's stopped now. But, but back then, I was doing pretty well. So I didn't really need to work for Disney+. Plus. My sense of humor wasn't really geared toward Disney films. So as much as right. I wanted to work there as a kid, it didn't make sense to uh, to work for them now. So I decided not to move out to L.A. and, and show my portfolio. I decided to stay in New York. Because I like New York. It's a really interesting city. It's a lot of craziness going on. So I wanted to stay in New York and, and develop my my work and I did five shorts right after your face and they were all big successes I did How to Kiss 25 Ways to Quit Smoking Flimp Tunes One of Those Days and a bunch of a uh, bunch of short gag films and they were all you know bought by Disney I'm sorry bought by MTV or, or uh, BBC or Candle Boost and, and I was doing really well so I didn't need to really worry about uh, you know, need a big studio. In fact, I probably would have gotten lost. I don't think I would have survived. Although Tim Burton decided, uh, definitely survived and he kept to his style. He kept to his look and his sense of humor. So uh, I shouldn't say that. Some people have survived. Um, so uh, I put all those short films and the Boomtown and some of the college experimental films uh, on a D, uh, I'm sorry, a video cassette, and it's about an hour. And I thought, holy cow! Within the last few years, I've made uh, an hour's worth of animation. That's almost a feature film. Why don't I make one feature? So I was really excited about that idea because. As far as I know, um, no one had ever made a, a one-man feature before. <laughs> animation. <laughs> yeah, animation. Yeah. So I called my musician friend, Maureen McKellarin, who did the music for Your Face, and, and we were in a band together, so we, we really liked the same kind of music. And I said, let's make a, a film like uh, Yellow Submarine, only use American roots music, like Country Western, Delta Blues, Rockabilly, Jazz, Surfing Music, that, you know, all the great American music. And we pitched it to a few people, but no one really bid on it. They, they, um, they thought it was really wasn't family-oriented like, like you know, animation was supposed to be. It wasn't Disney-esque. So I said, I'm going to do it myself. I did all the drawings. I uh, did a lot of the coloring, too, although we had some help coloring. Thank goodness. That would have been mm -hmm. very difficult. And it was called The Two. And I think it took us about two and a half years, maybe three years to make. And this was the early 90s. I think I started in 1989. Uh, yeah, 89 to 90, 91, something like that. And we got into Sundance, which was really cool because Sundance at that time... It was just starting to get hot. Uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape had played the year before. In fact, I think I was there with Out of Kids. So I was, I'd been to Sundance before, but never with a feature film. 
And um, so I, I, uh, the audience was great. We had a wonderful audience response, uh, lots of applause and yells and screams and everything. And uh, another cool thing that happened there, I was at the filmmaker's party. And this nerdy guy comes running up to me and says, oh, man, Bill Clinton, oh, I've seen all your films. I saw your video cassette. I, I know all your films front and back. You know, you're the greatest. You're the greatest. And it turns out it was Quentin Tarantino. Uh, and he was there with uh, Reservoir Dogs. Uh, was wow. The, the hit of the festival. Everybody was talking about Reservoir Dogs. The, uh, the ear scene, you know, everybody was freaking out about that. So um, we became friends, and, and we still keep in touch, uh, although not a lot, because he's in L.A. and I'm in New York. But anyway, um, we got a distributor, and um, it, it didn't do very well. They didn't have a lot of money. It's called October Films. But still, I was inspired that it, it really played a lot of theaters, and it did pretty well. It came out on uh, uh, video cassette, and... Um, I don't know, I'll, I'll tell you this video cassette story. I don't know if you heard it or not. Um, so when the thing came out on video cassette, I was hoping to get, you know, a big chunk of money because video was really big back then, you know, Blockbuster and all that stuff. Right. And so uh, they said, well, we only got $1,000 for $1,000. I mean, you're selling these video cassettes for 20 bucks each and you only get $1,000. I was really not, not happy about that. And in right. fact, I lived in East Village then, and I was um, walking by um, the uh, a local bodega. And out, out in front of the bodega, they were selling the tune on video cassette. And I said, what are you doing selling this? This is, this is my film. I, um, here, it's a black, it's a, it was a black market film, I could tell, because I think they took some stuff off. So it was a pirated, pirated film. So I grabbed it, and the shop owner was this Korean guy. You know, he didn't know. He didn't wasn't involved in it. And he grabbed it back. And so we were pulling it, having a tug of war on, on St. Mark's Place in the village. And they, they called the cops. I said, good, call the cops. Because this is pirated film. You, you don't have a right. You're taking money out of my pocket. And so um, a crowd gathered. Uh, you know, it's the East Village, and they're all anti, anti-authority kind of thing. And I started yelling, give them the video, give them the video, give them the video. And they were really, it was almost a riot. I wouldn't let go, and the shop owner wouldn't let go. And the cop said, you know what, uh, you're going to have to get a restraining order if you want to do this legally. You can't just steal it. I said, but it's mine. It's, it's black market. It's a, it's a pirated video. And so that was sort of the rough and tumble days of um, mar- marketing my film, selling my films back then. It was, uh, it was pretty wide open stuff. And um, I never got the video back. He, he probably sold it. But he probably canceled the order. He probably didn't take any more Plimpton films because he was afraid of getting another fight, street fight. Yeah, I mean, obviously that was a big deal you know the, the, you know black market videos and, and yeah. that stuff you know that was uh, that was uh, like was uh, was a big deal and how did and you were talking i remember actually when we were talking long ago not long ago it's like youtube was starting to become a big thing and you were like i gotta fight youtube now with all this yeah, stuff, right yeah, you're right you're right 
But uh, John, the guy who we're talking to on the phone, he handles that. He makes sure nobody else is showing my film. Um, and you know, if he sees it online, he, he calls them up and says, you know, you, you're doing something illegal, so you, you can't do that. Right. Right. I mean, uh, your, your, your style of stuff is always, you know, like that's... I always get excited when I see something I've never seen before. I see something like yeah. that is something, you know, that uh, it was around that time when things were very interesting. There was, you know, yeah, I, sure. you know I mentioned it a couple of times as I heard Nirvana for, like at that point, And I was like, I've never heard any music like this. Something is going to happen in the music industry that's going to change. Uh, and then I saw your animation on liquid television. I was like, this is, I've never seen anything like this. This is going to be completely different. Yeah. Those and, are the days. Uh, I, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, those are the days when MTV was really cool. I mean, everybody yeah. watched MTV, and not just for the music videos, but the cool animation and the, the, the video jockeys, and they did a lot of uh, a lot of neat stuff. And I was sort of the golden boy. I didn't know that, but I was sort of the golden boy of MTV because they hired me to do a bunch of uh, ecological shorts for them, and then for the... Uh, the um, music video awards. I was. I did all the interstitials on that, and and well, I've, I've met a lot of people lately who said um, that MTV never used my name. I, I never got my name in there, and they said, "Oh, it's the color pencil guy. He's on again." <laughs> I was known as the color pencil guy, and I, right. apparently I was quite well known, quite famous for that. And I only found out later that uh, that uh, I had a following on MTV. So it was fun working for MTV. For sure. For sure. Uh, one of the things I think that was interesting, obviously, and you mentioned, you you actually brought it up yourself is like, there was a, there was a, uh, people thought of, uh, cartoons, uh, and, uh, uh, animation as something that is for kids. Right. And then yeah. a lot of people sort of had this and, and sort of, you were one of the people that sort of broke that down in some ways. Yeah. And some other people had done that as well. Sure with heavy metal and things of that nature. But, um, but what, what are your thoughts about it now? Because I think it's becoming more and more, uh, popular, uh, for animation content that is reaching a more mature audience. What what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, I've always followed those, those films, even earlier in my career, uh, films like the submarine. I thought it was a really great film. The style was just beautiful. Of course, the Beatles did the, and then Ralph Bakshi was doing it, and um, I met him recently—not recently, but I've known him for a while—and he's really a great guy. He's a big fan, and uh, I told him that if I, I would known you were working on, on Fritz the Cat in New York when I moved here, I would have swept your floors for free. I would have paid you to sweep your floors because this would have been the opportunity where I learned how a film was made. But I, I wasn't aware of it. I didn't know that he was making his film there. But he was really an inspiration uh, in terms of the subject matter and uh, changing the audience. And, and uh, um, there were a lot of people, like you say, heavy metal and, and films like that that really influenced me. Then the Japanese animation came in, and that was definitely adult. In fact, my film, I Married a Strange Person, was, was really influenced by a lot of the adult Japanese animation, the real S&M stuff, you know, <clears throat> the violence and everything. So that helped change Yeah, And I have to say that that era, when I first started, uh, the late 80s, was a lot of changes. A lot of things were coming in. Uh, 
uh, Akira had uh, had opened to a huge huge audience. Uh, Disney started its comeback with uh, Little Mermaid and, and Lion King. All of a sudden, animation was hot. Then MTV started showing a lot of animation videos, um, and then you started seeing, you know, The Simpsons and and, and um, uh, Beavis and Butthead and people like that. So that that late '80s, early '90s was really an interesting uh, period. Uh, Brennan Stimpy was very popular, so that it was really kind of a, a revolution. I, I, people call it the second golden age of animation. Started in the late '80s. And that's right yeah. where I was, when I was uh, starting out. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there, there was definitely, a, you know, the, the 70s and early 80s with the Hanna-Barbera years were not necessarily oh, the most uh, <laughs> productive uh, I, of animation. I, I couldn't watch it. It was just broke my heart. <laughs> so sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, are, what are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, anime, uh, anime now is, is obviously uh, massively popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 people are consuming huge amounts of anime, uh, yeah. especially in the United States, is the number one importer of, of anime. Yeah. What are What are your thoughts on on that on that passion and that? Uh, well, I'm glad. Style? That, uh, I'm glad that they're uh, making animation that's really popular. You're spreading animation around to the younger younger people, and I think that's a good thing. However, uh, I think it's gone a bit far when everybody uh, copies anime. And when I get young students you know, coming in here looking for work and they show me anime, I, I'm really uh, saddened because they're, um, they lost their imagination. Uh, I want to see something, like you say, you've never seen before. That's what I'm looking for, something that's new and, and exciting and different rather than copying uh, you know, bad, uh, bad anime, which it is. I mean, the walking... It's a formula. It's all for the walking and the hair on the forehead and you know, all these things are so formulaic. It's really um, um, boring to me, really disgusting. So I tell people if they want to work for me, show me something new, show me something with a style that's different. And, and, um, that's what it was. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that, you know, I was looking at it. I was actually speaking to someone who's uh, in, in, in Japan and is talking about anime and books and all of that stuff. And that, that their style is mainly based on economics. They're paid by the limit of animation that they create. So if they create fewer frames <laughs> to create that much stuff, you know, they can have an entire dialogue where you just see the back of a head. <laughs> right? That's it. People accept it. So, and so it's like, yeah, I'm going to make a lot of money on this because per minute I'm doing that. And they're not paid a huge amount of money to do it either, animation. Very low-paying yeah. job uh, animation. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I would – when I see your style, like I said, it's like I, I can't believe you draw those frames. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really kind of an incredible thing, right? Well, I get up around 4, 4.30, something like that, and go to the drawing board and draw. And then I, I come to the studio, which is – here you can't see it, but um, right. and then I do some drawing. Also do phone calls and contracts and you know business stuff. And then I'll go home and I'll draw until you know seven or eight, and I feel so good after that. It's really refreshing to to draw all day. I just feel like I created something really special, 
and um, that's why I do it. I also watch um, movies while I'm drawing. You know, I've seen movies I've seen before, uh, some old movies from the 30s and 40s on TCM, and uh, it's just very relaxing doing the drawings. Um, I find it very comforting. That's, that's, that's great. And I think, that, I mean, obviously it was, um, you seem to, you, I remember actually you did mention that you liked a lot of old movies and I can definitely see some inspiration from old movies that in your drawings and your style of your characters yeah. that are in there. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, what, are, what are some of your favorite films that inspired you in some way? Well, uh, you know, I, I love a lot of the, the noir films, you know, um, uh, Postman Always Rings Twice and, um, you know, all those Humphrey Bogart films are great. You know, a lot of the darker, the darker films where everybody's evil. You know, that's what I like. Touch of Evil, the classic yeah. thing like that. That's great. That's great. Um, so you mentioned quickly about you know the you know the economy of things. I mean, how how is it, how do you make how are you able to do that? Obviously, you know your 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 parents did have a bit of a point of there's. Yeah. It's hard to make money in this area. So how did you manage to pull it off? Well, I got a good start in the 90s with all those commercials and everything. Um, and, and then when the internet came in, uh, the commercial, the, the, uh, the price for commercials went down a lot. Um, yeah. But I was uh, always had work. I, I was to, you know, first of all, I'd done a lot of shorts, and those keep selling over and over again. Um so the money keeps coming in depending on how many shorts I sell or how many features I sell. Uh, but also I, I do a lot of music videos, which I love. I love doing music videos. I still do a few commercials. I just did a, a Nike spot for the internet. Um, and um, I work on some documentaries. I, I do animation. You know, a lot of times documentaries don't have footage of... of um, Famous moments, and so they got to recreate it with the animation. So I, I, I do some of that, some of that stuff. Um, also, I I do a lot of personal appearances, uh, like the Guadalajara Festival. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, when COVID hit, that took a big uh, chunk of my income off the table uh, because I, I I do travel to places. I, I charge speaking fees. I charge screening fees. Sell my merchandise at the um, event, so I, I usually make good money doing these appearances. And uh, now with COVID, it was it was really uh, uh, not a good time. Now it's starting to come back. I've, I've just been touring. I went to Prague. I went to um, um, Mendocino. Did a show there. Did a show in um, um, Sacramento. So now I'm starting to travel again and. and selling stuff so it's getting a little bit better but um the, 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 i think the real smart thing i did was i retained all my copyrights i owned all the films that I made. and um that way when i sell it um you know i sell it for a year or two years and i get it back and i can sell it again so it's right. a good way to uh, maximize my profits and i do encourage young filmmakers to try and hold on to their copyrights yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was something that you you mentioned, and I when yeah. I heard it, we were talking about that, so that's great. Um, 
Now I know you said your 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 time is precious today, and, and you know you guys are very very busy. I don't want to take up too much more of your time because uh, and uh, and you were hoping to do it short. And I'm glad you gave me a little extra time. But this yeah. has been a fabulous talk, uh, Bill. I really appreciate this. Um, uh, I'm 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 obviously like I said I'm a huge fan of your work, uh, and I'm also a huge fan of your uh, your advice that you give people about. Thank stuff. you. So, yeah, really excited about that. And uh, what do you what before we go? What what are you excited about in terms of the future of animation? What are the things that you think are are, are going to be exciting in animation well, in the future? Well, I mean, it looks like uh, all of these um, internet uh, systems like Netflix and, and Hulu and, and uh, Amazon and, and Apple are really going to take over the big share of the business. And I think that's good because, like you said. Um, adult animation is a hard time getting to people, getting to audiences. But with the subscription um, venues, uh, I think that they're more open to adult-oriented animation. And I think that's a good yeah. thing. I haven't done a deal at Netflix. I did pitch some ideas, but they turned them down. But I have some other ideas that I wanted to do. And then also I'm working on a brand new film called Slide that uh, should be done next year sometime. Well, that's why the studio's so busy trying to finish right. that. And that's, um, it's a cowboy comedy um, musical. It's sort of oh, cool. Hank Williams kind of music uh, on a cowboy, cowboy movie. So I'm really happy with the way it looks, the way it's, it's editing together, and I'm hoping that I'll have that uh, out next year. That's awesome. I, what what have you have you heard of Love Death and Robots and if you have, have what are yeah. your thoughts on that? Yeah. And I knew the guy who was running that, and I called him up. I said I'd love to do something for you, and he said, "Well, we're all booked. You know, we have all the artists." Okay. He was a fan. In fact, we were nominated for an Oscar together. Uh, I had guide, guide dog, and he had to go for broke. Um, I've forgotten his name right now, but yeah, it's a cool guy. talking about Tim Miller. Yeah, Tim Miller. Thank you. Yeah, because I know Tim Miller pretty well as myself. Yeah. So, uh, and also, I think he wants he likes computer animation. I don't think he likes hand drawn animation. He's a computer guy. Uh, he's a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I love Love, Death, and Robots. I think it's a really good show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure, for sure. Well, that's great. Uh, Again, thanks a lot for your time, Bill. I really appreciate it, and uh, I, I look forward to you know at some point meeting up with you again. Yeah, when uh, next year when um, a cheap uh, slide comes out, let's talk. <laughs> <laughs>